If you're enjoying The Sleepy Bookshelf, then be sure to check out the other sleepy shows in our network. Get Sleepy has original stories and meditations. I even narrate some of them. Or if you prefer relaxing soundscapes and music, then be sure to check out Deep Sleep Sounds. It's even great for babies too. You can find all of our shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks and sweet dreams. Good evening and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host. It's lovely to be here with you. This evening we'll be returning to To The Lighthouse. But before that, let's take a moment to prepare for a restful sleep. Wherever you are, notice how nice it feels to close your eyes after a long day. Begin to breathe nice and easy in through your nose for four and out through your nose for four. Keep breathing through your nose and with each breath, you're calming your body and mind. You are melting away at the stresses of the day and slowing down, ready for sleep. Focus on relaxing and release any thoughts that might creep in about today or tomorrow. Just come back to your breath. When you're ready, feel free to drift your focus to the sound of my voice as I recap our last episode. Last time, Mr. Ramsey, Cam, and James were off on their boat towards the lighthouse. Mr. Ramsey was talking to Mr. McAllister about a recent storm, also on board their little boat, while his son fished. James and Cam were at opposite ends, both trying to ignore their father, who they felt had dragged them on this trip. Cam found this difficult. She idolised her father, but she did hate his tyrannical ways. James thought about his mother and felt again that anger rising in him with his father standing over them, demanding his mother's attention. Lily watched the boat on the water from the lawn. Identifying them, She went back to her painting. She thought about Paul and Minta Rayleigh and how their marriage hadn't been a success. Paul had a mistress now, and far from destroying them, Minta felt freed. They remained together and were very good friends. Lily would have enjoyed telling Mrs. Ramsay this the woman who pushed them together with her obsession with marriage. 
The day Lily decided to move the tree to the middle of her painting was the day she decided to never marry anybody, ever. And that's where we pick up tonight, with Lily still painting on the lawn outside the house. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of To the Lighthouse. Part 3 The Lighthouse Chapter 6 Continued Even her shadow at the window with James was full of authority. She remembered how William Banks had been shocked by her neglect of the significance of mother and son. Did she not admire their beauty, he said. But William, she remembered, had listened to her with his wise child's eyes when she explained how it was not irreverent, how a light there needed a shadow there, and so on. She did not intend to disparage a subject which, they agreed, Raphael had treated divinely. She was not cynical, quite the contrary. Thanks to his scientific mind, he understood proof of disinterested intelligence which had pleased her and comforted her enormously. One could talk of painting then seriously to a man. Indeed, his friendship had been one of the pleasures of her life. She loved William Banks. They went to Hampton Court and he always left her like the perfect gentleman he was, plenty of time to wash her hands while he strolled by the river. That was typical of their relationship. Many things were left unsaid. Then they strolled through the courtyards and admired, summer after summer, the proportions and the flowers, and he would tell her things about perspective, about architecture, as they walked, and he would stop to look at a tree or the view over the lake, and admire a child. It was his great grief he had no daughter, in the vague, aloof way that was natural to a man who spent so much time in laboratories that the world, when he came out, seemed to dazzle him, so that he walked slowly, lifted his hand to screen his eyes, and paused with his head thrown back merely to breathe the air. Then he would tell her how his housekeeper was on her holiday. He must buy a new carpet for the staircase. Perhaps she would go with him to buy a new carpet for the staircase. And once, something led him to talk about the Ramses, and he had said how, when he had first saw her, she had been wearing a grey hat. She was not more than 19 or 20. She was astonishingly beautiful. There he stood, looking down the avenue at Hampton Court, as if he could see her there among the fountains. She looked now at the drawing room step. She saw through William's eyes the shape of a woman 
peaceful and silent with downcast eyes. She sat musing, pondering. She was in grey that day, Lily thought. Her eyes were bent. She would never lift them. Yes, thought Lily, looking intently. I must have seen her look like that, but not in grey, nor so still, nor so young, nor so peaceful. The figure came readily enough. She was astonishingly beautiful, as William said. But beauty was not everything. Beauty had this penalty. It came too readily, came too completely. It stilled life, froze it. One forgot the little agitations, the flush, the pallor, some queer distortion, some light or shadow which made the face unrecognizable for a moment and yet added a quality one saw forever after. It was simpler to smooth that all out under the cover of beauty. But what was the look she had, Lily wondered, when she clapped her dear stalker's hat on her head, or ran across the grass, or scolded Kennedy the gardener? Who could tell her? Who could help her? Against her will, she had come to the surface and found herself half out of the picture, looking a little dazedly, as if at unreal things, at Mr. Carmichael. He lay on his chair with his hands clasped above his paunch, not reading or sleeping, but basking like a creature gorged with existence. His book had fallen onto the grass, She wanted to go straight up to him and say, Mr. Carmichael. Then he would look up benevolently as always from his smoky, vague green eyes. But one only woke people if one knew what one wanted to say to them. And she wanted to say not one thing, but everything. Little words that broke up the thought and dismembered it said nothing. About life, about death, about Mrs. Ramsay. No, she thought. One could say nothing to nobody. The urgency of the moment always missed its mark. Words fluttered sideways and struck the object inches too low. Then one gave it up. Then the idea sunk back again. Then one became like most middle-aged people. Cautious, furtive, with wrinkles between the eyes and a look of perpetual apprehension. For how could one express in words these emotions of the body? Express that emptiness there? She was looking at the drawing room steps. They looked extraordinarily empty. It was one body's feeling not one's mind. The physical sensations that went with the bare look of steps had become suddenly, extremely unpleasant. To want and not to have 
sent her all up her body a hardness, a hollowness, a strain, and then to want and not to have. To want and want. How that wrung the heart and wrung it again and again. Oh, Mrs. Ramsay, she called out silently to that essence which sat by the boat, that abstract one made of her, that woman in grey, as if to abuse her for having gone, and then having gone, come back again. It had seemed so safe thinking of her. Ghost. There, nothingness. A thing you could play with easily and safely at any time of day or night. She had been that. And then suddenly, she put her hand out and wrung the heart thus. Suddenly, the empty drawing room steps. The frill of the chair inside. The puppy tumbling on the terrace. The whole wave and whisper of the garden became like curves and arabesques flourishing round a centre of complete emptiness. What does it mean? How can you explain it all, she wanted to say, turning to Mr. Carmichael again. For the whole world seemed to have dissolved in this early morning hour into a pool of thought, a deep basin of reality. And one could almost fancy that had Mr. Carmichael spoken, for instance, a little tear would have rent the surface pool. And then, something would emerge. A hand would be shoved up. A blade would be flashed. It was nonsense, of course. A curious notion came to her that he did, after all, hear the things she could not say. He was an inscrutable old man, with the yellow stain on his beard, and his poetry and his puzzles, sailing serenely through a world which satisfied all his wants, so that she thought he had only to put down his hand where he lay on the lawn to fish up anything he wanted. She looked at her picture. That would have been his answer, presumably. How you and I and she pass and vanish. Nothing stays. All changes. But not words, not paint. Yet it would be hung in the attic, she thought. It would be rolled up and flung under a sofa. Yet even so, even of a picture like that, it was true. One might say, even if this scrawl, not of that actual picture perhaps, but of what is attempted, that it remained forever, she was going to say, or for the words spoken sounded even to herself too boastful, to hint, wordlessly. When looking at the picture, she was surprised to find that she could not see it. Her eyes were full of a hot liquid, She did not think tears at first, which without disturbing the firmness of her lips made the air thick, rolled down her cheeks. She had perfect control of herself, oh yes, in every other way. Was she crying then for Mrs. Ramsay, 
without being aware of any unhappiness. She addressed old Mr. Carmichael again. What was it then? What did it mean? Could things thrust their hands up and grip one? Could the blade cut, the fist grasp? Was there no safety? No learning by heart of the ways of the world? No guide, no shelter? But all was miracle and leaping from the pinnacle of a tower into the air. Could it be even for elderly people that this was life? Startling, unexpected, unknown. For one moment, she felt as if they both got up, here, now, on the lawn, and demanded an explanation. Why was it so short? Why was it so inexplicable? Said it with violence as two fully equipped human beings from whom nothing should be hid might speak. Then beauty would roll itself up. The space would fill. Those empty flourishes would form into shape. If they shouted loud enough, Mrs. Ramsay would return. Mrs. Ramsay, she said aloud. Mrs. Ramsay. The tears ran down her face. Chapter 7 McAllister's boy took one of the fish and cut a square out of its side to bait his hook with. The mutilated body, it was still alive, was thrown back into the sea. Chapter 8 Mrs. Ramsay! Lily cried. Mrs. Ramsay! But nothing happened. The pain increased. That anguish could reduce one to such a pitch, she thought. Anyhow, the old man had not heard her. He remained benignant, calm, if one chose to think it, sublime. Heaven be praised no one had heard her cry that ignominious cry. Stop, pain. Stop. She had not obviously taken leave of her senses. No one had seen her step off her strip of board into the waters of annihilation. She remained a skimpy old maid, holding a paintbrush. And now, slowly, the pain of the want and the bitter anger to be called back just as she thought she would never feel sorry for Mrs. Ramsay again. Had she missed her among the coffee cups at breakfast? Not in the least. Lessened and of their anguish left as antidote, a relief that was balm in itself, and also, but more mysteriously, a sense of someone there, of Mrs. Ramsay relieved for a moment of the weight that the world had put on her, staying lightly by her side, and then, for this was Mrs. Ramsay in all her beauty, raising to her forehead a wreath of white flowers with which she went. Lily squeezed her tubes again. She attacked that problem of the hedge. It was strange how clearly she saw her, stepping with her usual quickness across fields among whose folds 
purplish and soft, among whose white flowers, hyacinth or lilies, she vanished. It was some trick of the painter's eye. For days after she had heard of her death, she had seen her thus, putting her wreath to her forehead and going unquestioningly with her companion, a shade across the fields. The sight, the phrase, had its power to console. Wherever she happened to be, painting, here, in the country or in London, the vision would come to her, and her eyes, half-closing, sought something to base her vision on. She looked down the railway carriage. The omnibus took a line from the shoulder or the cheek. Looked at the windows opposite. Piccadilly, lamps strung in the evening. All had been part of the fields of death, but always something. Might be a face, a voice, a paperboy crying, Standard news. Thrust enough snubbed her, waked her, required and got in the end an effort of attention so that the vision must be perpetually remade. Now again, moved as she was by some instinctive need of distance and blue, she looked at the bay beneath her, making hillocks of the blue bars of the waves and stony fields of the purpler spaces. Again she was roused, as usual, by something incongruous. There was a brown spot in the middle of the bay. It was a boat. Yes, she realised that after a second. But whose boat? Mr. Ramsay's boat, she replied. Mr. Ramsay, the man who had marched past her, with his hand raised, aloof at the head of a procession, in his beautiful boots, asking her for sympathy, which she had refused. The boat was now halfway across the bay. So fine was the morning, except for a streak of wind here and there, that the sea and sky looked all one fabric, as if sails were stuck up high in the sky the clouds had dropped down into the sea. A steamer far out at sea had drawn in the air a great scroll of smoke, which stayed there, curving and circling decoratively, as if the air were a fine gauze which held things and kept them softly in its mesh, only gently swaying them this way and that. And as happens sometimes when the weather is very fine, the cliffs looked as if they were conscious of the ships, and the ships looked as if they were conscious of the cliffs, as if they signalled to each other some message of their own. For sometimes, quite close to the shore, the lighthouse looked this morning in the haze an enormous distance away. Where are they now? Lily thought, looking out to the sea. Where was he? That very old man who had gone past her silently, 
holding a brown paper parcel under his arm. The boat was in the middle of the bay. Chapter 9 They don't feel a thing there, Cam thought, looking at the shore, which rising and falling became steadily more distant and more peaceful. Her hand cut a trail in the sea as her mind made the green swirls and streaks into patterns and numbed and shrouded, wandered in imagination in that underworld of waters where the pearls stuck in clusters to white sprays, where in the green light a change came over one's entire mind and one's body shone half-transparent enveloped in a green cloak. Then the eddy slackened round her hand. The rush of the water ceased. The world became full of little creaking and squeaking sounds. One heard the waves breaking and flapping against the side of the boat as if they were anchored in harbour. Everything became very close to one. For the sail upon which James had his eyes fixed until it had become to him like a person whom he knew, sagged entirely. There they came to a stop, flapping about, waiting for a breeze in the hot sun, miles from shore, miles from the lighthouse. Everything in the whole world seemed to stand still. The lighthouse became immovable and the line of the distant shore became fixed. The sun grew hotter, and everybody seemed to come very close together and to feel each other's presence, which they had almost forgotten. McAllister's fishing line went plumb down into the sea, but Mr. Ramsay went on reading with his legs curled under him. He was reading a little shiny book with covers mottled like a plover's egg. Now and again, as they hung about in that horrid calm, he turned a page. And James felt that each page was turned with a peculiar gesture aimed at him. Now, assertively. Now, commandingly. Now, with the intention of making people pity him and all the time, as his father read and turned one after another of those little pages. James kept dreading the moment when he would look up and speak sharply to him about something or other. Why were they lagging about here, he would demand, or something quite unreasonable like that. And if he does, James thought, then I shall take a knife and strike him to the heart. He had always kept this old symbol of taking a knife and striking his father to the heart. Only now, as he grew older and sat staring at his father in an impotent rage, it was not him, that old man reading whom he wanted to kill, but it was the thing that descended on him. Without his knowing it, perhaps, that fierce, sudden, black-winged harpy with its talons and its beak all cold and hard that struck 
struck and struck at you. He could feel the beak on his bare legs, where it had struck when he was a child, and then made off. And there he was again, an old man, very sad, reading his book. That he would kill. That he would strike to the heart. Whatever he did, and he might do anything he felt, looking at the lighthouse and the distant shore, whether he was in business, in a bank, a barrister, a man at the head of some enterprise, that he would fight, that he would track down and stamp out tyranny, despotism, he called it, making people do what they did not want to do, cutting off their right to speak. How could any of them say, but I won't, when he said, come to the lighthouse, do this, fetch me that, the black wings spread and the hard beak tore. And the next moment, there he sat reading his book. And he might look up, one never knew quite reasonably. He might talk to the McAllisters. He might be pressing a sovereign into some frozen old woman's hand in the street, James thought. And he might be shouting out at some fisherman's sports. He might be waving his arms in the air with excitement or he might sit at the head of the table, dead silent, from one end of dinner to the other. Yes, thought James, while the boat slapped and dawdled there in the hot sun. There was a waste of snow and rock, very lonely and austere. And there he had come to feel quite often lately, when his father said something or did something which surprised the others. There were two pairs of footprints only, his own and his father's. They alone knew each other. What then was this terror, this hatred, turning back among the leaves which the past had folded in him, peering into the heart of that forest where the light and shade so chequer each other that all shape is distorted, and one blunders, now with the sun in one's eyes, now with a dark shadow. He sought an image to cool and detach and round off his feeling in a concrete shape. Suppose then that as a child, sitting helpless in a perambulator or on someone's knee, he had seen a wagon crush ignorantly and innocently someone's foot. Suppose he had seen the foot first, in the grass, smooth and whole, then the wheel, and the same foot, purple, crushed. But the wheel was innocent. So now when his father came striding down the passage, knocking them up early in the morning to go to the lighthouse, down it came over his foot, over Cam's foot, over anybody's foot. One sat and watched it. But whose foot was he thinking of? And in what garden did this all happen? For one had settings for these scenes. Trees that grew there. Flowers, a certain light. A few figures. Everything tended to set itself in a garden where there was none of this gloom. None of this throwing of hands about. 
People spoke in an ordinary tone of voice. They went in and out all day long. There was an old woman gossiping in the kitchen. The blinds were sucked in and out by the breeze. All was blowing. All was growing. And over all those plates and bowls and tall brandishing red and yellow flowers, a very thin yellow veil would be drawn, like a vine leaf at night. Things became stiller and darker at night, but the leaf-like veil so fine that lights lifted it, voices crinkled it. He could see through it a figure stooping, here, coming close, going away, some dress rustling, some chain tinkling. It was in this world that the wheel went over the person's foot. Something he remembered stayed flourishing up in the air. Something arid and sharp descended even there like a blade, a scimitar, smiting through the leaves and flowers, even of that happy world, making it shrivel and fall. It will rain, he remembered his father saying. You won't be able to go to the lighthouse. The lighthouse was then a silvery, misty-looking tower with a yellow eye that opened suddenly and softly in the evening. Now James looked at the lighthouse. He could see the whitewashed rocks, the tower stark and straight. He could see that it was barred with black and white. He could see windows in it. He could even see washing spread on the rocks to dry. So that was the lighthouse, was it? No, the other was also the lighthouse. For nothing was simply one thing. The other lighthouse was true too. But sometimes hardly to be seen across the bay. In the evening, one looked up and saw the eye opening and shutting, and the light seemed to reach them in that airy, sunny garden where they sat. But he pulled himself up. Whenever he said they or a person, and then began hearing the rustle of one coming, the tinkle of someone else going, he became extremely sensitive to the presence of whoever might be in the room. It was his father now. The strain was acute. For in one moment, if there was no breeze, his father would slap the covers of his book together and say, What's happening now? What are we dawdling about here for, eh? As if once before he had brought his blade down among them on the terrace, and she had gone all stiff all over. And if there had been an axe handy, a knife or anything with a sharp point, he would have seized it and struck his father through the heart. She'd gone stiff all over. And then, her arm slackening so that he felt she listened to him no longer. She'd risen somehow, and gone away and left him there, impotent, ridiculous, sitting on the floor grasping a pair of scissors. What a breath of wind blew. 
The water chuckled and gurgled in the bottom of the boat, where three or four mackerel beat their tails up and down in a pool of water not deep enough to cover them. At any moment, Mr. Ramsay, he scarcely dared look at him, might rouse himself, shut his book and say something sharp. But for the moment, he was reading, so that James stealthily, as if he were stealing downstairs on bare feet, afraid of waking a watchdog by a creaking board, went on thinking, what was she like? Where did she go that day? He began following her from room to room, and at last they came to a room where, in a blue light, as if the reflection came from many china dishes, she talked to somebody. He listened to her talking. She talked to a servant, saying simply whatever came into her head. She alone spoke the truth. To her alone could he speak it. That was the source of her everlasting attraction for him, perhaps. She was a person to whom one could say what came into one's head. But all the time he thought of her, he was conscious of his father following his thought, surveying it, making it shiver and falter. At last he ceased to think. There he sat with his hand on the tiller in the sun, staring at the lighthouse, powerless to move, powerless to flick off these grains of misery which settled on his mind, one after another. A rope seemed to bind him there, and his father had knotted it, and he could only escape by taking a knife and plunging it. But at that moment, the sail swung slowly round, filled slowly out, The boat seemed to shake herself, and then to move off, half-conscious in her sleep. Then she woke and shot through the waves. The relief was extraordinary. They all seemed to fall away from each other again and to be at their ease, and the fishing lines slanted taut across the side of the boat. But his father did not rouse himself. He only raised his right hand mysteriously in the air and let it fall upon his knee again, as if he were conducting some secret symphony. Chapter 10 The sea without a strain on it, thought Lily Briscoe, still standing and looking out over the bay. The sea stretched like silk across the bay. Distance had an extraordinary power, They had been swallowed up in it, she felt. They were gone forever. They had become part of the nature of things. It was so calm. It was so quiet. The steamer itself had vanished, but the great scroll of smoke still hung in the air and drooped like a flag, mournfully in valediction. Chapter 11 It was like that then, the island, thought Cam, once more drawing her fingers through the waves. She had never seen it from out at sea before. It lay like that on the sea, did it, with a dent in the middle, 
and two sharp crags, and the sea swept in there and spread away for miles and miles on either side of the island. It was very small, shaped something like a leaf stood on end. So we took a little boat, she thought, beginning to tell herself a story of adventure about escaping from a sinking ship. But with the sea streaming through her fingers, a spray of seaweed vanishing behind them, she did not want to tell herself seriously a story. It was the sense of adventure and escape that she wanted. For she was thinking, as the boat sailed on, how her father's anger about the points of the compass, James's obstinacy about the compact, and her own anguish, all had slipped. All had passed. All had streamed away. What then came next? Where were they going? From her hand, ice cold, held deep in the sea, there spurted up a fountain of joy at the change, at the escape, at the adventure, that she should be alive, that she should be there. And the drops falling from this sudden and unthinking fountain of joy fell here and there on the dark, the slumberous shapes in her mind, shapes of a world not realized, but turning in their darkness, catching here and there a spark of light, Greece, Rome, Constantinople. Small as it was and shaped something like a leaf stood on its end with the gold, sprinkled waters flowing in and about it. It had, she supposed, a place in the universe, even that little island. The old gentleman in the study, she thought, could have told her. Sometimes she strayed in from the garden purposely to catch them at it. There they were. It might be Mr. Carmichael or Mr. Banks who was sitting with her father, sitting opposite each other in their low armchairs. They were crackling in front of them, pages of the Times, when she came in from the garden, all in a muddle about something someone had said about Christ or hearing that a mammoth had been dug up in a London street or wondering what Napoleon was like. Then they took all this with their clean hands. They wore grey-coloured clothes. They smelt of heather. And they brushed the scraps together, turning the paper, crossing their knees, and said something now and then very brief. Just to please herself, she would take a book from the shelf and stand there, watching her father write so equally so neatly from one side of the page to the other, with a little cough now and then, or something said briefly to the other old gentleman opposite. And she thought, standing there with her book open, one could let whatever one thought expand here, like a leaf in water. And if it did well here, 
among the old gentlemen smoking in the times crackling, then it was right. And watching her father as he wrote in his study, she thought, now sitting in the boat, he was not vain, nor a tyrant, and did not wish to make you pity him. Indeed, if he saw she was there reading a book, he would ask her as gently as anyone could, was there nothing he could give her? Lest this should be wrong, she looked at him reading the little book with the shiny cover mottled like a plover's egg. No, it was right. Look at him now, she wanted to say aloud to James. But James had his eye on the sail. He's a sarcastic brute, James would say. He brings the talk round to himself and his books, James would say. He is intolerably egotistical. Worst of all, he is a tyrant. But look, she said, looking at him. Look at him now. She looked at him, reading the little book with his legs curled. The little book whose yellowish pages she knew without knowing what was written on them. It was small. It was closely printed. On the flyleaf, she knew he had written that he had spent 15 francs on dinner. The wine had been so much. He had given so much to the waiter. All was added up neatly at the bottom of the page. But what might be written in the book, which had rounded its edges off in his pocket, she did not know. What he thought, they none of them knew. But he was absorbed in it, so that when he looked up, as he did now for an instant. It was not to see anything. It was to pin down some thought more exactly. That done, his mind flew back again and he plunged into his reading. He read, she thought, as if he were guiding something or wheedling a large flock of sheep or pushing his way up and up a single narrow path. Sometimes he went fast and straight and broke his way through the bramble. And sometimes it seemed a branch struck at him. The bramble blinded him, but he was not going to let himself be beaten by that. On he went, tossing over page after page. And she went on telling herself a story about escaping from a sinking ship, for she was safe while he sat there, safe, as she felt herself when she crept in from the garden and took a book down, and the old gentleman, lowering the paper, suddenly said something very brief over the top of it about the character of Napoleon. She gazed back over the sea at the island, but the leaf was losing its sharpness. It was very small, it was very distant. The sea was more important now than the shore. Waves were all around them, tossing and sinking, with a log wallowing down one wave, a gull riding on another. About here, she thought, dabbling her fingers in the water, a ship had sunk, and she murmured 
dreamily, half asleep. How we perished, each alone. Thank you.